Let's look at the word together. I want to talk today, we're of course continuing to talk about rebuilding. We've been talking about learning from these stories of of the men who returned to Jerusalem and rebuilt it a generation after it had been destroyed. We're recognizing that while these stories are about literal walls and buildings that needed to be rebuilt, sometimes lives need to be rebuilt. Sometimes churches need to be metaphorically rebuilt. Sometimes communities or relationships. There's all sorts of things that the ministry calls us to rebuild. When damage has been done, whatever that damage might look like, rebuilding needs to take place. And frankly, I think this metaphor of rebuilding applies particularly well to HRCC. Now, I'm not suggesting that this church is in ruins. I love my church. And I'm not standing here saying, boy, have we had it. This is terrible and we need to be rebuilt. I'm not saying that, but I do think the metaphor of rebuilding applies very well to our congregation because we, like most churches around the world and certainly in America, are entering a season where we need to acknowledge that the way that we've done ministry for years and years and years has broken down. It's broken down. It's changed perhaps forever. The pandemic has caused some of that. For instance, think about all the things that we used to do every week that we haven't done in almost a year now. How about kids' church? How about small groups in your home? There's all kinds of ways and methods that we've grown accustomed to doing ministry and they've broken down. They just don't work anymore. Some of them will work again, but some of them might not work again. But even more than the direct results of the pandemic, I I think just all the change that we've gone through in the last year has revealed things to us. Things in our ministry model that were built strong enough to endure and some things that weren't built strong or well enough to endure. And the point is this, we can't just assume that someday in the hopefully not too distant future, we're going to flip a switch and everything's going to go back to normal and we can just start doing things the way we always did them. I don't think that's what this looks like. I think we need to start thinking like rebuilders. Most of what we've talked about as it pertains to rebuilding over the past few weeks has meant to be inspirational. I'll let you decide if it actually was inspirational or not, but it's certainly been meant to be inspirational. I've told you how I believe God is preparing his church for a season of rebuilding, and I think that the first thing that he wants us to hear in that message is that rebuilding is possible. This thing can happen. This is going to work. We don't need to be afraid to walk among the ruins, as we said a couple of weeks ago. Last week, we talked about how we can pray with confidence as we expect God's help in our rebuilding projects. But today I want to pivot a little bit because I think it's time to add a word of caution to the story. There are always obstacles to rebuilding. It's hard work. If it wasn't, anybody could do it. But rebuilding is never an easy task. Oftentimes, it's met with opposition and even outright conflict. And if we're going to presume to rebuild, whether we're talking about we, HRCC, or whether you're as an individual identifying some things in your life that you think the Holy Spirit is saying it's time to rebuild, if we're going to presume to rebuild, 
we would do well to understand the obstacles to rebuilding. And so, just briefly, I want to reintroduce our rebuilders. We've seen them in our drawing here, these six men. Today, I'm going to focus on one particular sequence of events, a series of events that shaped the stories of the four rebuilders on your left. Zerubbabel, Joshua, Haggai, and Zechariah. Ezra and Nehemiah, they're going to have to wait their turn. Maybe next week we'll talk about them. But today I'm just going to highlight one series of events that involves these four men on the left. Let's begin with Zerubbabel and Joshua. They were chronologically the first to appear back in Jerusalem. And when they did, most of Jerusalem was still in ruins. They were kind of the first ones to get there, to get on the site with the specific mission of rebuilding. And they decided, Zerubbabel and Joshua did, that the first thing that needed to be rebuilt was the altar. The altar was the center of worship in the midst of of the temple. So the entire temple is still in ruins, but they go right to the middle of it and they say the first thing we want to rebuild is we're going to rebuild the altar because the altar was the place of worship. So they made that their top priority. They said before we have anything else, we want the people of Jerusalem to have a place to worship before anything else happens, even if the walls aren't done yet, even if it's open air and open to the elements, we need to start with the altar. But that wasn't an easy choice for them to make. It wasn't a simple, straightforward choice. When you start, how are we gonna begin? Should we do the walls? Should we do the buildings? Are we gonna do this? Are we gonna do that? They arrived at, we're gonna start with the altar, but it wasn't an easy choice to make because they knew that there were enemies surrounding Jerusalem and they knew that once they started rebuilding, they would be vulnerable. And frankly, folks, they were scared. The Bible says it, they were scared. And you know what? Let's start there. It's scary to start rebuilding. It's scary to start rebuilding. Look at what the Bible says about Zerubbabel and Joshua and their fear. This is from the book of Ezra. Now, Ezra isn't yet on scene, but he's a historian. So he records this story for us, even though he wasn't there to see it. Ezra chapter three, verse two tells us, then Joshua and Zerubbabel began to build the altar of God the altar of the God of Israel to sacrifice burnt offerings on it in accordance with what is written in the law. Despite their fear of the people around them, they built the altar on its foundation. There it is. Despite their fear, they were afraid. Do you see what's happening here? This is not a story where they were afraid and they overcame their fear and then they were good to go and they built That's not what the Bible says. It says, despite their fear, they were still afraid while they were rebuilding. It's scary to rebuild. It's scary to rebuild, even for these godly men. I remember I had uh, just the privilege to, to visit Ground Zero and stand at the Ground Zero site in New York City just about six months after the attacks of 9-11. And at the time I was there, there was still a large hole in the ground. There was plenty of wreckage and rubble still visible. I mean, to my eyes, it looked like the attacks had just happened a couple of days ago. There still wasn't much that could really truly be called rebuilding happening at that time. Those of you that are old enough to remember what life here was like 
in 2001. I mean, do you remember those months for months following the attacks? It was a scary time for us. We didn't know what was gonna happen next. We felt vulnerable as a nation in a way that we had never really felt before. There was hope, but there was fear. Will there be another attack? What's gonna happen next? There were deep concerns about how safe it was even to be in that location for some time. Starting to rebuild means walking through the insecure foundation of the rubble. I remember, as I said, standing at 9-11, you certainly couldn't just wander into the wreckage. It wasn't safe to do that. There were fences all around. There were observation decks where tourists such as myself could come and look and take pictures. There were memorials surrounding the place, but you can't just walk into the wreckage. Why not? Because it's dangerous. It's dangerous. It's a scary place. And that's what rebuilding involves. It takes trained people to walk into the insecure foundation. You never know for sure what's going to hold and what's going to give way. You have to not be afraid to turn over the rocks and see what's lying and hiding underneath them. Rebuilding means making yourself vulnerable to the people that surround you, knowing that some of them might not want you to rebuild. It can be a scary situation. One of the reasons that it's scary is that it's hard to know who to trust. Ezra chapter 4 records right at the beginning in verse 1 that when the enemies of Judah and Benjamin heard that the exiles were building a temple for the Lord, the God of Israel, those enemies came to Zerubbabel and to the heads of the families and said, let us help you build. Hey, we're here to help. And they go on to say, because, you know, we're just like you. We're basically twinning. You know, we would like to have an altar here to God. We, Yay, Yahweh, we'd love to see that altar rebuilt. But they were lying. Zerubbabel had an executive decision to make in that moment. Do we rebuild on our own? Knowing that we probably don't have enough strength. Or do we accept help from some of these neighbors who seem to be saying that they're willing to help and might be okay with this? Now, God had warned his people already not to trust those rival tribes that were surrounding Jerusalem. So fortunately, Zerubbabel made the right choice. He and Joshua told the other tribes to stay away. They told them in no uncertain terms, mind your own business. And it's a good thing. Because in reality, those tribes were dead set against the rebuilding efforts. Choosing to trust them would have been a disaster. And they show their true colors just a couple of verses later in verse 4. Then the peoples around them went out, set out to discourage the people of Judah and to make them afraid to go on building. They bribed officials to work against them and to frustrate their plans during the entire reign of Cyrus, king of Persia, all the way down to the reign of Darius, king of Persia. So Ezra, ever the historian, is recording. This went on for, there's actually two kings in between, four administrations. For four administrations, those guys just kept on coming in opposition against. Now, if you're undergoing a rebuilding effort in your life, relationship, something personal, something in community that needs to re be rebuilt. If you're doing that, you're going to have to make decisions about who you're going to trust. You're going to have to make decisions about who to trust. And it is not good enough. Do you hear this? It's not good enough to trust the people who seem to be nice. It's not good enough to just trust the people who seem to like you 
or who make it sound like they want to help. Rebuilders have to be smarter than that. Because sometimes people seem nice, as was the case with these rival tribes outside of Jerusalem, but their real interest is in keeping you in ruins. Or on the other hand, sometimes people are well-meaning enough, they just aren't very wise. And how much does the Bible tell us about fool's counsel? And trusting in either situation like that with a rebuilding project would be disastrous. You know what we call those kinds of relationships in the contemporary world? We call them toxic relationships. People that want to keep us down or, or people that might think they're doing us some good but actually are giving us terrible, terrible advice. We call those toxic relationships. And God's people need to choose their associates wisely, especially when they're rebuilding. Notice in Zerubbabel's story, the rebuilding process means saying no to toxic relationships. Do you hear that? Part of your rebuilding project means saying no to toxic relationships. We can't afford to have the wrong people around us because it's likely that they are going to bring some very intimidating obstacles to the rebuilding process. We may have powerful opponents. Now, of course, the opponents that we might have aren't always people. The opposition might come in the shape of circumstances or our own fears. It might be spiritual warfare. But in the case of Zerubbabel and Joshua, the opponents were people. And in some cases, they were very, very powerful people. So Zerubbabel and Joshua have returned to Jerusalem. Jerusalem is surrounded by these rival tribes who aren't really keen on the idea of Jerusalem being rebuilt. But they're all subject to the king of Persia. So what these rivals do is decide, we're going to write a letter to the king of Persia telling him what's going on. We're going to tattletale on Zerubbabel and Joshua. Now, it was Cyrus, king of Persia, who had set Zerubbabel and Joshua back, but he's gone now. There's a new king on the throne. And so these rivals write letters to the new king. Ezra chapter 4, verse 6 says, At the beginning of the reign of Xerxes, these rival tribes lodged an accusation against the people of Judah and Jerusalem. And then he says, And then the next king, in the days of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, they wrote another letter to Artaxerxes. They wrote formal complaints to every king of Persia they could find. And in both cases, the powerful kings read the complaints and said, Oh, this is bad. And they told the Israelites to stop rebuilding. And it worked. And it worked. Powerful, powerful opponents. Ezra chapter 4, verse 23 records this. As soon as the copy of the letter of King Artaxerxes was read to the rivals. So Artaxerxes gets a letter, and then he writes a reply saying, oh, that's bad, tell him to stop. And so as soon as his reply is read to, to their rivals, to the, to the Jewish rivals, they immediately went to the Jews in Jerusalem and compelled them by force to stop. They made them stop rebuilding. Powerful opponents, right? powerful opponents. There are people and there are circumstances that can halt rebuilding efforts entirely. And in the natural, it may seem like in those moments, the rebuilder has no choice, that there's nothing he or she can do and there's no way forward. And this is the part of the story where people who tend to focus on the obstacles typically give up. 
Essentially, that's actually what happened in Jerusalem. The workers that returned with Zerubbabel and Joshua threw up their hands and said, well, the king has said what the king has said. We have to just stop rebuilding. They figured there was no way forward. And that, we've talked about this before, that is when they began to get used to living a life in ruins. They began to get used to seeing the landscape littered with ruins. But let's back up a moment. Let's back up a moment. What was in that letter? What was in that letter to the Persian king that made him halt the rebuilding? After all, it was his predecessor, a different Persian king, that had started the rebuilding. So why the change in national policy here? Fortunately, Ezra you know, is a historian, and so his book of the Bible records the letter for us so we can know exactly what was in it. Essentially, the letter told a bunch of half-truths about the Israelites and their plans to rebuild. The rivals who wrote the letter told the king that the Jews only wanted to rebuild so that they could revolt against Persia, which of course was not the case. See, we may feel like rebuilding is a good thing, but even when we're trying to do good things, sometimes our motives may be questioned. Our motives get questioned when we try to rebuild. Let me show you what I mean. <clears throat> Excuse me. The letter to the Persian king <coughs> said this. Pregnant pause. The king should know that the people who came up from you have gone to Jerusalem and are rebuilding that rebellious and wicked city. They are restoring the walls and repairing the foundations, which actually that wasn't happening yet. Furthermore, the king should know that if this city is built and its walls are restored, if this happens, king, if you let them get away with this, what's going to happen? No more taxes, tribute, or duty will be paid to you. And eventually the royal revenues will suffer. They told the king exactly what kings hate to hear. This is going to hurt you in the pocketbook, right? And you know what? The king bought it. The king bought it. The Jews' opponents questioned their motives, and the king bought it. Those that would become rebuilders need to know that the world is sometimes going to question our motives. They will tell lies, and they will tell half-truths about why we would presume to do what we are doing because rebuilding is an exercise of faith. It takes faith to believe that ruins can stand as temples once again. And faith never makes sense looking from the outside in. It never makes sense to the outsider. And so they will tell lies, they will tell half-truths, they will question our motives, and sometimes the power brokers of this world will buy the lie. Our motives are going to be questioned. The opponents will come, the questions will be raised, and the obstacles will sometimes seem insurmountable. But there is power in the words of God. Amen? Amen. Amen. There is power in the words of God. This is where the story turns. There is power in the words of God. You might think that it would have taken a change of heart from the Persian king to turn this story around and get the rebuilding going again. 
Or you might think that maybe it would just take new leadership in Jerusalem. Maybe Zerubbabel and Joshua weren't up to the task after all. Maybe it would take some sort of revolution or uprising. Maybe we need to exert power and force. Maybe it just takes a good old-fashioned miracle. Is there a sea that could be parted or 5,000 that we could feed here? Something. We need something to get us going. But it was none of those things that turned this story. It was the proclamation of the words of God. What it took was a prophet, or in this case, two prophets, enter Haggai and Zechariah, right? To speak to the people on God's behalf. After 15 years of stalling, the story finally changed because the prophet spoke. Because the prophet spoke. Ezra chapter 5 verse 1 says, Now Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the prophet prophesied to the Jews in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of God of Israel who was over them. And then look what happened next. Then Zerubbabel and Joshua set to work to rebuild the house of God in Jerusalem. They blew the horn and said, guys, it's time to come to work because God has spoken. And the prophets of God were with them, supporting them. They were with them, supporting them. Now remember, prophets don't predict the future. We've said that every time we talk about prophecy. Prophets don't predict the future. That's not what they do. They speak on God's behalf. So when the prophet speaks, God is speaking. These are God's words. It took Haggai and Zechariah to walk into a situation that had lain dormant for about 15 years. Nothing else had changed. The king hadn't changed his mind. The rivals hadn't let them go. Circumstances hadn't changed. Nothing was different. But two men of God came, anointed by the Spirit, to speak on God's behalf. We read Haggai's words earlier. He said, you say it's not time, but I'm telling you what, it's time. Let's get to work, boys. And Zerubbabel and Joshua go, you know what? He's right. It's time. And all of a sudden, the sound of axes on the rocks. All of a sudden, the sound of hammers and chisels on the rocks. All of a sudden, the sound of laborers and workers and animals and everything they can leverage on the rocks and in the ruins because it's time to rebuild. There's power in the words of God. The book of Hebrews in the New Testament, chapter 4, verse 12, so tells us, the word of God is alive and active. It is sharper than any double-edged sword. Now, typically when we hear that verse, perhaps you've quoted it before we think of the Bible, right? The word of God is alive and active. We think the Bible, the words in the Bible are alive and active. I uphold that. I believe that. The Bible certainly is the word of God. But I want to point this out to you. As the, author of Hebrew is, as the author of the book of Hebrews is writing those words, the word, the word of God is alive and active, he could not possibly have been referring to the Bible as you and I have it, because the Bible was not yet compiled. He was writing part of the Bible as he wrote those words. He could not possibly have been saying, the NIV version of the Bible that you recently purchased on Amazon is alive and active, sharper than a double-edged sword. That's not what he's saying. He's saying the words that our God speaks. He's talking about prophecy, folks. The words that our God speaks are alive and active. They are sharper than a double-edged sword. That's why in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 1, Paul tells us, eagerly desire the gifts of the Spirit, especially prophecy. 
right? We talk about the gifts of the Spirit, all the ways that the Spirit enables His churches to do the ministry that they've And there's so many things there, and we, we think about this wonderful collection of, of spiritual gifts, and Paul says, but there's one that you really need to be hungry for. Eagerly desire the gifts of the Spirit, especially prophecy. And you know why? Because there's power in the words of God. There's power in the words of God. About 75 years before Haggai and Zechariah began prophesying to the rebuilders, there was another prophet whose name you might know. His name was Ezekiel. Ezekiel actually lived as part of the generation that was in captivity in Babylon. Ezekiel grew up and got married and lived in Babylon. Ezekiel famously one time had a vision of a valley filled with old, old, rotting skeletons. And in the vision, God asked him the question, said, Ezekiel, can these skeletons come back to life? Can this boneyard be reanimated and come back to life? Ezekiel, can these bodies be rebuilt? Right? Can they be rebuilt? And Ezekiel and God have this brief really awkward conversation about the potential possibilities where Ezekiel just basically dodges the question. It's like, I have no idea. I don't even know what to say here, God. Whatever it is you're looking for me to say, I don't know. And God says, Ezekiel, let me show you something. Prophesy. Prophesy? Prophesy. To whom, Lord? To the bones. Okay, so I'm going to prophesy. I'm going to speak your words to a pile of dry bones. Yes. And Ezekiel begins to prophesy to the dry bones. Many of you know the story. In his vision, he sees the bones begin to reanimate and come together and form skeletons and then begin to have muscle and tissue and skin. And all of a sudden, there are living bodies before him. And how does it happen? It happened because Ezekiel obediently prophesied there are power, there is power in the words of God. It was the words of God that rebuilt, reanimated those bones. That was 75 years before Zerubbabel and Joshua and Haggai and Zechariah. About 500 years after them, a man by the name of Lazarus died. And his body began the decaying process by which it would become a dry skeleton, just like Ezekiel had seen all those years earlier. And Lazarus' friends did what people do when their loved ones pass away. They wept, and Lazarus stayed in the tomb. They cried, and Lazarus stayed in the tomb. They prayed, and Lazarus stayed in the tomb. They obeyed God, and Lazarus stayed in the tomb. But then Jesus said, Lazarus, come out. And, Jesus, and, and Lazarus walked out of the tomb. It was the power in the words of God, right? It took the words of God to breathe new life into a dead body. There is power in the words of God. There is rebuilding power in the words of God. Back to our story. The rebuilding resumes. 
And of course, the Israelites' neighbors are once again upset. They say, oh my goodness, we had them down for 15 years, but now they're rebuilding again. Will these guys never learn? What should we do? So they get together and they write another letter. Are you keeping track? This is their third letter to the Persian king. But of course, we have a new Persian king. This time, the king is a man named Darius. And so Darius gets their letter, and he does what his previous two predecessors hadn't done. He reads the letter, but then he looks back in the record books, and he discovers that the whole reason that the Jews are in Jerusalem is that the original Persian king, Cyrus, had sent them there to rebuild the temple. So he writes a letter back to these rival tribes who don't want the temple to be rebuilt. He sends a letter back to the people who were complaining, and his letter says this. I'm reading to you from Ezra chapter 6, beginning in verse 6. I believe you can follow along on the screen. Here's Darius' letter. Now then, Tatnai, governor of Trans-Euphrates, and Shether Bozani, hey, pretty good, right? And you other officials of that province, whose names I can't pronounce, stay away from Jerusalem. Stay away from there. Do not interfere with the work on this temple of God. Let the governor of the Jews, that's Zerubbabel, and the Jewish elders, that's Joshua, rebuild this house of God on its site. You stay away and stop bothering them. <laughs> Let them do the job they're supposed to be doing. The whole thing backfires on these guys. In other words, the work can resume. It is time to rebuild. If this were an ordinary church, and if we served an ordinary God, that would be the end of the story. I would pray, and you would all go home to stay warm and have your Valentine's Day dates. But we do not serve an ordinary God, so I got more to tell you, because the story's not over there. Go back and start rebuilding Keep out of their hair. They got work to do. It's not God's style to stop there. God is not a God of the good enough. He's a God who does exceedingly and abundantly above and beyond what we could ever imagine or even know to imagine. So look at what the rest of Darius's letter says. Moreover, Darius says... I hereby decree what you are to do for these elders of the Jews in the construction of the house of God. Their expenses are to be fully paid out of the royal treasury from the revenues of trans-Euphrates, in other words, from your bank account, so that the work will not stop. Whatever is needed, young bulls, rams, male lambs for burnt offerings to the God of heaven, wheat, salt, wine, olive oil, as requested by Joshua and the priests of Jerusalem, must be given to them daily without fail, so that they may offer sacrifices pleasing to God of heaven and pray for the well-being of the king and his sons. Church, do you love it? Do you love it? Do you love it? In other words, these guys are going to rebuild the temple and you're going to pay for it. You're going to pay for it. Whatever they ask for, they're not going to send me invoices for me to initial and send on to you. They're just going to tell you what they need, and you're going to pay for it. And he goes on to say, and if I find out that you gave them any grief, watch out. Watch out. 
They're building the temple and you're going to pay for it without complaints and without question. Church, God turns opposition into assets, into assets. The enemy rises up, the enemy rises up, the obstacles stack up higher and higher, and the good Lord says, bring it, because we can use all that, right? We see, we stand in fear sometimes of the obstacles, what, what the enemy puts in front of us, and God is saying, would you like me to pay for that? Oh my goodness, this is the God we serve. Let's close with this. If you're seeing an opportunity to rebuild in your life, chances are good that you're also seeing obstacles. You're hearing the voices of rivals who are telling you it can't be done or it shouldn't be done. You're realizing how vulnerable the act of rebuilding feels. You're wondering about who you could possibly trust in an endeavor like this. You're hearing the voices of the powers of this earth telling you, you're not allowed to do that. You're not allowed to rebuild. You have to let the ruins remain. And these obstacles are starting to stack up and it can feel overwhelming and it might even look hopeless. I want you to think about this story. And today I want you to look again. I want you to look again because you serve a God that turns opposition into assets. Way at the beginning of the Bible, Joseph and his fancy coat, remember him? His brothers wanted to tear him down, but the Bible says what they intended for evil, God used for good. Opposition becomes asset. Way in the New Testament, Romans 8, chapter 28, Paul writes, in all things, all of the things, God works for the good of those who love him and who have been called according to his purpose. Can I suggest to you today that his purpose is to build? Right? His purpose is to build. If you have been called to that purpose, then you qualify in this verse. When you are working according to that purpose, God is going to use all things. I believe that includes obstacles, right? God is going to use all things for your good, he is going to turn opposition into assets. So don't let the obstacles intimidate you. If you're a rebuilder, listen to the words of God and rely on his power. Because church, it's time to get back to work. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you, Lord, that we can, we can look at a story like this and, and read, and it feels like life sometimes feels like the hits just keep on coming. Like, oh my goodness, this is... And that's not how they're going. And they don't trust these guys. And, 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 and this one's going to say that. And, and it's just never going to work. Lord, everybody in this room, I believe, I believe everybody in this room knows what that feels like. Thank you for reminding us by your spirit what you do with opposition. Thank you for reminding us with your words today that there is power in the words of our God. And so we pray today, speak, Lord. That is our prayer today. Speak to your people. Speak to your people today, Lord. Speak to us in your written word. Lord, draw us into scripture and speak to us through your written word. But we, Lord, as a Pentecostal people filled by the Holy Spirit, we pray today, speak, Lord. Anoint us anew and fresh. Speak to us with the words of prophets in our generation. 
Speak to us, Lord. Speak to the obstacles that stand in our path. Lord, teach us how to command mountains to be moved. As you said, you would teach your followers. And anoint us and prepare us for this good work. We receive your commissioning today. In the name of our Savior Jesus. And everybody says, Amen. Amen. We love you, church. Bundle up. Stay warm. Have a wonderful week of rebuilding.